www.thepeopleshow.com. Hi, Darwin Davidson here. Many thanks to all you fine folks who called into Brownsbound during our pledge drive last week. With your very generous help, WERU surpassed their financial goals for the fourth quarter of 2019. This week I will continue to feature new music that has come into the station in recent weeks, plus more tracks from our new old CDs, and a few tracks from my old bluegrass LPs. So please join me, Darwin Davidson, on Thursday, November 14th from 8 to 10 p.m. for a lot of great bluegrass music. That's all going to be right here on Community Radio, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. See you Thursday. This is WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Support for WERU comes from Penobscot Bay Press, committed to providing community news and information. Publishing three weekly newspapers, the Weekly Packet, Island Advantages, and the Castine Patriot, as well as the Bay Community Register, the Summer Seasonal Guide, and more. Also on the web at PenobscotBayPress.com. We've got 30 seconds before bookworm time, so let's take a quick look at the weather. Today, 20% chance of rain this afternoon between uh, 1 and 2 p.m. Tonight, uh, 70% chance. Snow showers likely low of 30. Mostly sunny tomorrow, high of 46. Friday night, mostly clear at 16. And Saturday, sunny and 30. Mostly clear Saturday night and 13. We're looking at a sunny day on Sunday with a high of 35. All good fall weather, don't you think? Thanks for listening to WERU. Stay tuned for Bookworm. Good morning and welcome to Bookworm on Community Radio, WERU. My name is Brooke Minner. I am the library director at the Brooksville Free Public Library. And it's my pleasure to host this monthly show where I talk to main authors about books and writing and all sorts of other things. My guest this month is Susan Shatterly. She is the author of several books, but her most recent book that we'll be discussing today is called Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. Uh, We're joined today by two additional guests in the studio. Ken Ross is here, came down from Washington County. Ken and his brother... um, play a relevant role in this book, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Also, Dr. Robin Hadlock-Seeley is here. She is a recently retired marine ecologist professor from Cornell. Uh, Thank you all so much for coming and for making the drive on this very cold morning. Thank you for having us. Okay. So I think we're going to start with Susan uh, doing some reading from the book, and we'll sort of set it up that way. Sure. Um, I thought I'd start and read just little pieces Uh, to show what the mood of the book is, at least in the beginning. But I'll avoid um, reading about um, the hard science in this, but it doesn't mean that we won't bring that up later. So I'll start with a bit of the prologue and then move on to some other parts. 
Am I close enough to the microphone? You are. (laughs) Down East Maine, where I live, is for me the most beautiful place on earth, even in February, even on a dark day in a sharp wind. It is ledge and cobble, spruce and white pine, mud flats that glisten like a harbor seal's wet pelt, low tide rocks covered in layer upon layer of seaweeds, and a and a horizon straight east across the water into sunrise in Canada. No frills. It has been for me, and I think for so many others who live here, William Blake's grain of sand, a teaching place, and we have learned something of the world from it. Within the wild fabric of this shore, in its many coves and bays, seaweeds and other lives, from barnacles to fish to birds, are bound together as they are along the shores of other places in the world. It is a tightly woven warp and woof of life, an ancient and essential system of give and take. That's how I open the book. And then I'm going to read you uh, from a place a bit further on, chapter one. Uh, one, yeah, the Gulf of Maine. <clears throat> At his studio on Prout's Neck in 1885, Winslow Homer completed his iconic painting of a Gulf of Maine fisherman, The Fog Warning. In 1883, when he was 47 years old, Homer had moved to this peninsula, which lies on the east side of the Scarborough River estuary, a few miles south of Massacre Pond, the site of a 17th century battle between settlers and the native tribes. The peninsula reaches straight into the Gulf of Maine without any island buffers. From his studio on the second floor of his converted carriage house, the painter began his late great works of weather and rocks and water and, of course, the people for whom this was home that have become a part of the American imagination. In a real sense, The Gulf of Maine belongs to all of us through these canvases, which tell us something of who we are in the world. You probably know the fog warning. The fisherman rowing his dory to the mothership, a dark bank of fog rolling in across the water toward him. Because of the water swell, the inside of his dory is pitched upward in our direction, and in the hull lie two enormous dead halibut, the beautiful tasty monster fish that were once common in our inshore waters. By Homer's time, the halibut catch had just started its nosedive. And inshore halibut fishermen hired themselves out to larger ships that sailed offshore for the fish that remained. This is what you see in the painting. A fisherman rowing his catch to the ship, hoping to close the gap before the fog erases all sign of her. He is no longer an independent inshore operator of his own boat, and the fish he's caught are at the end of plenty. Today the painting shocks us with the wild beauty and the formidable danger of our former fisheries, and a warning not of fog, but but of how quickly a good thing can disappear. We are moving into a time along the Gulf of Maine that forces us to reappraise this once astonishingly rich body of water and instead instead of assuming, as we have for many generations, that it will take care of us, we are realizing 
that we are the caretakers of what is left of it, and that what is left is changing, even as we try to understand all the small and large parts and how they fit together. Thank you so much. Susan Shatterly reading from her book, Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. So let's um, start big picture. Uh, Why did you choose to write about seaweed to start with? (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, um, I was going to write a book of essays of general one thing or another that had to do with Maine. And um, when I was reading my list to my agent, uh, she was much too quiet until (laughs) I got to the... um, essay about harvesting seaweed, going out with Andrea De Francesco and harvesting uh, sugar kelps. And she thought that sounded great. She said, oh, Susan, write a whole book about seaweed. (laughs) And I thought she was nuts because I thought there was not much to say about seaweed, maybe a short article, maybe a short essay. But my book is just skimming the surface. (laughs) There's so much to say about seaweed. It's true. And when the book came out last year and, um, you know, we got a copy at the library and I kept hearing from patrons, this is the best book. You won't believe how interesting it is. And it's about seaweed. Um, And they are completely right. There is so much there. Uh, One of the things and and I think like many people, I will say I I had not spent much time thinking about seaweed and I don't have a a science background. and so I was so struck, at, and I think it was towards the beginning, when you're just describing what seaweed is and the different types, um, you know, that it is a plant that has no roots and no stems, no leaves. I mean, it's very unique. Um, and so was that part of the appeal to you, too? Or was it the, the broader kind of cultural stuff that we'll get to? You know, I think that um, when I started um, looking at seaweed, I went out and bought a lot of very expensive technical books about seaweed, and I did not understand a word. <laughs> a word. And it was terrifying because the thing is, it, ha- it's, it has its own language, and it's like learning a new language. And so the thing that was exciting to me was to be a bridge between science and the general reader, and I was the general reader, really, as are you. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I was writing for you Mm -hmm. and for me, trying to make this um, stuff (laughs) um, uh, accessible to us so that we could understand how it plays in the larger um, scope of things, which it does very much. It does very much, and... um Part of what you alluded to even when you read earlier, but I think that is so important around connecting with the general population, is that the conditions in the Gulf of Maine have always been changing but are rapidly changing now. And I wonder if we can just um, set the scene a little bit by by talking about that. You know, what are the conditions? What are the things that have been um, changing recently that are of concern and have to do with the marine ecology? Uh, so the Gulf of Maine is um, one of the bodies of war- bodies of water that's warming um, more quickly. Um, we're, we all have heard about uh, ocean warming it, if we live on the coast, um, but Gu- Gulf of Maine is warming more quickly, and this has a bunch of consequences. Um, one is 
more warm water species um, are being introduced into the Gulf of Maine um, that we haven't seen before. And fishermen are very good at um, picking up on that um, when they see something that is unusual. Um, another consequence is that uh, species that have a certain range are moving in their distribution um, from south to north. Um, one of the species that we're most concerned about and is most important for the state of Maine is, of course, lobster. And lobstering used to be uh, a big economic activity in Long Island Sound and in Connecticut, but now not so much, um, in part because of warming waters there. And um, there's a concern that the focus of lobster activity may continue uh, to shift east. Um, so those are two, two, two big changes. Mm -hmm. One thing um, I wanted to say is when I started researching this book, I got a whole bunch of studies about ascophyllum, which is rockweed, which is knotted rack. I mean, <laughs> pick, your, pick your name. Um, and the um, scientists who were studying it said that there wasn't much concern that it was fine and the warming wasn't uh, damaging it. By the time I was finishing the book, and my the book did take a long time, uh, it was quite the opposite. And so there was concern that not only would um, knotted rack start moving northward, but the whole, all the creatures that were within it that depended on it would go northward as well. But there's only a certain amount of northward you can go before the light changes. And whether uh, ascophyllum or knotted rack could survive a winter of darkness, you know. I mean, in other words, the band is getting very narrow. Mm -hmm. And it's happening much faster than people thought. Yeah, so Ken, I'd love to bring you into this conversation. Um, <laughs> he just gave me a side eye, but <laughs> we're going to bring him in no matter what. Um, so as I mentioned, Ken uh, lives up in Washington County in Robinson, and many of our listeners uh, might recall that there was a fairly high-profile court case around um, the harvesting of rockweed. Ken and his brother... Um, who I'm sorry, I'm forgetting. What's your brother's name? Carl. Carl thank you. We're the first planets in the case. So um, talk a little bit about about that and and where things are at. I know it's kind of a long and complicated story, but well, we'll start. I, I think well, perhaps uh, uh, the best way to start for me would be to remark uh, uh, how perfectly uh, Susan's reading that she gave introduces us to the whole thing that and I, I I have on my wall at my cottage on Cobscook Bay a copy of the painting oh. uh, of the the fisherman with the halibut in the, the boat oh. and uh, it it was the end of plenty as as uh, as Susan put it and that really has been the story of practically all the resources of the sea that we've used on the main coast uh, for generations. We've just gone at them so heavily and so hard without any thought of any any end limit or protection 
that almost nothing's left. One by one by one by one, they go down and they don't come back. And this is no exception. Uh, rockweed, when I was a kid, was not given any thought in terms of whether it would always be here, was not given any thought in terms of whether it would be marketed worldwide uh, or that people would fight over it or that we'd even care who owned it. And so if you felt like taking rockweed on your own shore or somebody else's, you just did it, or you might ask permission, but nobody cared. But in the last few years, people begin to um, find markets for it or find new markets for it, especially in the realm of uh, fertilizers but a lot of others. And the take of the rockweed went from a very low level, which was used to pack lobsters with, to ship them, and a few things like that, shot right up, and it kept it on going, and it still is, or, or until very recently when the case was settled. <laughs> so it, it became a matter of concern, and uh, the ecologists, uh, starting with Rachel Carson, for one, had been declaring that this is an important part of the ecosystem and needs protection and it's basic to the well-being of all of the other fish and fisheries uh, in the inshore. And uh, now uh, it looked as though we were about to do the same thing with the rockweed as we did with the cod and, and the, the other fish that have nearly disappeared. So... Um, so uh, the question arose, well, who owns that anyway? Is it the, is it the state's uh, ownership that they can lease out uh, by uh, licenses to uh, people so they can come and cut? Or do the landowners who live next to it own it? And, uh, well, that was a question that had to be settled. And the more we looked into it, the more we realized that it, uh, it needed to go to court to settle. And this was the st position taken by the state, that, that uh, were, it's uncertain. Come, while it was uncertain, though, they were giving out licenses for people to cut, and they were supporting the increase because it, they thought it meant more jobs and uh, profits and so on. So uh, it had to go to court. Someone had to do it, and... Uh, we had a conservation easement along our property that protected rockweed as well as other things. And uh, someone started cutting on it, and uh, we objected. And uh, for want of a better solution to it, <laughs> we took it to court yeah. and along with another party that that uh, joined the suit. Mm-hmm. And... And so and the case has the, just recently been settled, is that oh, right? It took three and a half years to settle it. It's, the course case started in 2015, and it, uh, just last March, 28th or 9th, mm -hmm. it was settled by the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. and, what, and so what was the outcome? What is the current situation with, with harvesting rockweed in Maine? Well, that's a question that's a very big question <laughs> and robin will have most to say about that but uh, 
But the court itself declared that uh, it did not belong to the state, and they based their reasoning on uh, a variety of of cases mm. and uh, laws going back to the 1600s <laughs> in the colonial time uh-huh. that, that were adopted by Massachusetts and then by Maine when we were separated from Massachusetts. Yeah, which was really so, fascinating to me that it had um, the, you know, it's so complicated, as you said, but having ties back to, you know, colonial land rule. Uh, listeners, if you're just tuning in, this is Bookworm. My name is Brooke Minner. My guest this month is Susan Shutterly. She's the author of Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. We're also joined by Ken Ross and Dr. Robin hadlock Seely. Uh, Robin, did you want to um, jump in on that and talk a little bit about what the current situation is with, with uh, the seaweed harvest in Maine? I do, but I wanted to point out, um, to make the connection with Susan's writing, what she writes about so beautifully is ecosystem connectivity. I mean, there are scientific terms that are so important around this issue, and Susan writes about them beautifully. One is ecosystem connectivity, where uh, the well-being of one species depends on several other species. Um, But also I wanted to point out that the phenomenon that Ken is talking about, um, we scientists call fishing down the ecosystem. So you you start with the, the big species, the halibut that Susan's talking about, and when those species higher on the food web are depleted, then you move further and further down the food web. And so now we find ourselves at the, at the, pretty much at the bottom with taking the seaweed. The, the case was um, not about who owns the intertidal. It was well established that private individuals in Maine own the intertidal. The question was who owns the seaweed and could the seaweed be, could harvesting seaweed be considered fishing? And the court answered that unanimously, no, it is not fishing. And that was that was what the court decided. Unfortunately, what's happened now is that, um, j- to put it bluntly, um, there's a, just been a, a complete outbreak of illegal harvesting over this past season, I think for several reasons. Um, one is that there are certain companies that don't accept um, the decision of the court and felt it was a mistake, and therefore felt that that gave them an opportunity to continue to harvest without permission. Um, other companies declared in press and otherwise that they were asking permission, um, but we found out through a month's study um, done by Rockweed Coalition that uh, in m- numerous cases that was that was not the case. And I think another way to explain the illegal harvest is that change is always difficult and so there needs to be a certain cultural change that happens at the same time so for for several reasons uh, but but it's it's upsetting to, to have worked this hard to come to a resolution of this ownership question to have landowners be able to say no I don't want my seaweed harvested but to have it harvested nonetheless yeah, and so when you're talking about companies that are harvesting seaweed, I mean, again, going back to the fact that I think a lot of people are really unaware of a lot of the issues around the rockweed harvest in Maine and other kinds of things, but um, there's a real market, and it sounds like the market for the product is growing and growing rapidly. So so who are these companies, and what are they doing with it? <laughs> I mean, fertilizer, I know, is one thing that, that Ken had mentioned, but what else? 
Uh, so I don't want to mention any companies by name. Um, I will say that um, there is machine harvesting of rockweed going on in the Blue Hill area. And uh, after this show, we're actually going to visit some landowners who were assured that their rockweed would not be harvested, and then it was. Um, and they're quite upset about it. Um, but <clears throat> the main, the main uh, product seems to be agricultural. So either uh, an ingredient in agricultural animal feed or something called biostimulants. So there's something special about the rockweed that when you apply it to a golf course uh, turf or something like that, it, it, it helps the roots. They grow the roots faster or more, more have more roots on them. Um, and so there's a huge global market, <clears throat> excuse me, for biostimulants. And as, as people prefer to move away from chemical fertilizers, um, this natural biostimulant is being promoted as a more ecologically sound way um, to do agriculture. The problem is the people at the end who are consuming these project products, buying them, are not thinking about where, you know, what habitats that these organisms are coming from because there's nothing on the bag saying this is critical habitat for shorebirds. <laughs> this is where the baby lobsters live. You know, so I've actually talked to farmers in Oklahoma at meetings who were using this on their farm um, as an organic uh, way to farm and then heard about this and now have sworn off ever using it again because they're conscientious farmers. They want to do the right thing for the world, um, but they just had no idea. Mm -hmm. So they go back to chemicals. I mean, talk about a <laughs> rock in a hard place. Right. I mean, <laughs> um, there was something I wanted to say about that. Oh, the thing is that wildlife uses seaweed. In the Gulf of Maine, it just doesn't stay in the inshore. It uh, floats out. It gets dislodged in storms. It breaks down, and it becomes uh, a nutrient for um, microalgae, the one-celled algae, the phytoplankton out in the ocean. So in other words, it's feeding everybody. And what we found out right now... There are people down in southern Maine at the University of Southern Maine, very smart people, who are trying to figure out how to turn uh, sugar kelp into a biofuel so we can stop using um, the things that we don't think are good and start using seaweed. Well, can you imagine they're trying to design uh, a platform to put in federal waters three miles off the coast where the sugar kelp will grow in winter. Are you following this? <laughs> I mean, talk about a challenge. But how many platforms do we need? Is it for cars? Is it for planes? Um, where are we going with this? And it's not just in the United States that people have been given big federal grants to study how to turn, how do you seaweed for one thing or another, but it's in other countries as well. But seaweed is fabulous. A certain kind of seaweed is can cut down the methane in cattle so that it doesn't pollute, the methane is less and the cattle don't pollute, but guess what? If we ate less meat, <laughs> then we wouldn't need as much seaweed 
to bring down the um, methane. And seaweed can be used instead of plastic bags. It can be used for cups to make, you can put coffee in. I mean, it's as as essential and useful to us as it is to wildlife. So how are we going to be careful? What are we going to do? And so, so much of the book really speaks to that exact thing that, and, and Ken also referenced it earlier, I mean, we've not been careful, right? Over hundreds of years, we've not been careful. And here we are in 2019, we have a lot of information about uh, what's changing in our climate. Um, we know the species that uh, are already gone. And yet, um, it seems like when it comes to seaweed, at least in some segments, um, there's just a lot of taking. <laughs> yeah. And one thing to remember is in the case of rockweed, it's not just the volume that we're talking about, the volume of plant material that's been taken out. Because when it gets cut, it goes through this habitat transformation when it's growing back. It grows back in a different way. So if you can imagine a tall oak tree with a trunk and a canopy and the birds live in the canopy, that would be the way the underwater rockweed forest that Rachel Carson described would look. After the rockweed's been cut and when it's periodically recut, it has more the form of a hedge or a bush. And so it's simply not providing the same ecological services that that virgin tall forest was. So even though the total amount of biomass material that is being taken in some comparisons might seem small. The problem is that activity of harvest is expanding into new places, into conservation land, you know, on uh, land trust islands, all kinds of places. That habitat is being transformed. And we don't exactly know what it means when you take a three-dimensional habitat that looks like an uncut forest and you turn it into a managed forest of bushes. Yeah, so that's a really good point. And it's... um it's a really complicated and fascinating topic. Uh, listeners, if you're just tuning in, my name is Brooke Minner. This is Bookworm. My author guest this month is Susan Shetterly. We're talking about her latest book, Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. We're also joined by Ken Ross and Dr. Robin hadlock pardon me, who have come down uh, from Washington County and, and play a role in the book. If you have uh, questions for Susan or for any of our guests, we would love to take your call. You can call 469-0500 or 1-866-625-9378 if you're not calling locally. And we'd be happy to put your question on the air. Um, so, Susan, you really tell the story of seaweed, but you, you tell it through the story of people. Yes. And the chapters in the books yeah. all feature just a variety of fascinating people. And we don't have time to talk about all of them. <laughs> but I thought maybe you could tell us about one or two of the, the folks who are featured in your book, because they really are all just these incredible I characters. I agree. I agree. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is, well, Robin is one, <laughs> and so is Ken. They're both in the book. But the interesting thing is that I didn't realize how many women were in the book until I finished writing it, and somebody mentioned that to me. I mean, I was just going after one interesting story after another, 
because I felt the only way to tell a seaweed story was to tell it uh, in a narrative sense, you know, and um, to try to hold uh, the reader's attention. I like the story of Catherine, Kathleen, actually, Drew Baker, who lived in Manchester, England. But I wasn't going to write about it because I thought everybody knows about it. But, of course, only the everybody were the people who know about <laughs> seaweed. And so my daughter-in-law said, you have to write about it. And so she was a person who figured out about... Um, Nori or Laver as we or Laver Laver, Laver. <laughs> um, and it took her a long time. She figured it out, and she actually d- saved the Nori industry in Japan after the World War II. Yeah, so and a really amazing story. And you're right, there are a lot of amazing women in the book, although I didn't yeah. pick up on that. Um, yeah. We have a caller on the line. Sandy is calling from Blue Hill. Go ahead. We're getting some strange kinds of feedback sounds. Are you on the line, Sandy? Maybe not. We'll try again. You can call back and we'll see if we can make the technology work a little better. Um, <laughs> um, I also, I loved the story and I'm, I didn't jot down her name, so I'm forgetting. But first of all, I had no idea that people raised sheep on islands. Oh, oh. <laughs> so Donna you, Cowson. Thank you. Will you yeah. tell us about her and also this the, the practice itself, which oh, is... Oh, it's fabulous. To- it's, it's wonderful. Fa- it's so interesting. Well, this coast was first settled by Scots-Irish and the Scots. And um, they had a manner of putting sheep on islands, and the sheep would adapt over time to eating seaweeds. And so we did it here. Um, and so Donna's... Uh, has an island called Flat Island, and it is aptly named. <laughs> and, the, and the sheep live there, and they go down and eat the kelps that are torn loose and thrown up. Um, and then uh, they also eat some of the grasses up higher on the island. And they stay out all winter. But the thing that's so interesting is how their bodies have adapted to eating kelps and how they are different they have a different biome than sheep on mainland and if you take these island sheep especially that are exclusively kelp eaters and you put them on the mainland they don't do well uh, because they've adapted to a different mm. kind of diet, and grass doesn't work for them mm-hmm. yeah. and I was I thought it was just fascinating that um, she doesn't prov- provide them additional fresh water, right? So that the water that they are drinking is just rainwater or snow. Yeah. I love sounds, that. It sounds miserable. They look pretty happy. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you have a question for Susan or any of our guests, we'd love to take your call. 469-0500 is the number to call locally or 1-866-625-9378. Um, I also did not know, (laughs) this is going to be the theme, all the things I learned, but you will learn a lot when you read this book, uh, that seaweed could be grown. I know that sounds naive. It's a plant. Obviously, plants can be grown, but I was not aware of that. So will somebody talk a little bit about that process and and what's going on currently in Maine, especially in that realm? (laughs) 
Well, one of the differences between rockweed and other species is that rockweed is not farmed, um, not farmed commercially, and the reason is because it grows incredibly slowly. Species that are uh, cultivated um, in farms tend to be the kelps, which grow very, very fast, on average about a centimeter a day. So that allows um, the seaweed farmers to plant <laughs> a crop um, uh, in the winter and then have it harvested in the spring and have, have a crop ready for that. Um, my understanding is that most of that farmed kelp is actually going to human food, not to things like fertilizer or bio biofuel at this time. But there's a huge market, as I understand it, for the farmed kelp um, to be put into things that humans can eat. Um, I also heard that there's so much demand for it now that the farmed kelp cannot not actually keep up with the demand commercially. And that's a problem because it means that then the seaweed harvesters have to actually go to the wild kelp forests in order to meet the demand. That was the situation two or three years ago. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but that's one of the problems where the demand and the supply is a little out of whack. Mm -hmm. But there are many other species, I think, that are being farmed in right. Maine, too. Right. And it's all part of the growing aquaculture surge on the coast, which interestingly is, is um, a little bit of a cultural clash because there's still wild fishermen, like lobster fishermen, that expect not expect to see huge amounts of bottom or space being taken up by these aquaculture farms and um, communities that don't necessarily want to see their waters filled with aquaculture farms. So it's another point of tension, I would say, on the coast right now, the tension between lots all these aquaculture leases coming up for seaweed and for other organisms as well, and more traditional fisheries. Mm -hmm. Well, um, it is a hard thing to puzzle out because I remember when I first moved to the coast um, and we lived in Prospect Harbor. And uh, my husband then dug clams and I worked in the fish factory. I was told I was the slowest cutter they'd ever had. <laughs> Anyhow, but I did that. And um, the my heart has always been with a small um, person who who goes out, who's not part of a huge business, who's independent, who goes out and takes some. But I really think that we've never explored the idea of a managed commons in which the people who live in, let's say, a certain town who get their livelihood from the ocean, th that they, in a sense, should own that resource. It should go out to the, to the federal waters, which are three miles offshore. And they should manage it. They should patrol it. And if they ruin it, that's all they got. You know, it's a perfect way to learn how to take care of a resource that you want to pass on to your children and grandchildren. Um, but then, uh, yeah, it becomes complicated. Mm. That Quite. idea has been explored mm. for many, many years. And we, Ken and I live on Cobscook Bay. Um, the Cobscook Bay scallop fishery is an example of that, where it's an enclosed bay, a great macrotidal estuary, and has one of the last great scallop, commercially viable scallop populations in the state. And the scallop fishermen from around that bay 
were very interested in having, I don't want to say ownership, but uh, caretaking responsibilities for that bay, um, taking care of their resource, coming up with their their own rules for for managing it on a very local scale. The problem is that they would do that, and then scalp draggers from all over the state would come and reap the benefit of what they had caretaken Uh, so closely. And it seemed that it was impossible to to manage that fishery in particular. I'm just using that as an example. Locally, um, it had to be, for reasons I don't understand, a state-managed fishery. There's some some rules, some fit. I don't know what the rules are, but <laughs> it, it was impossible for them to do what seemed to uh, those of us who live there to make perfect sense, that they're tending their area and they reap the benefit of that area. Well, mm. see, here's the thing that's so difficult is that we have bad rules. <laughs> I mean, there's an example of what could be a very good um, test case for a managed commons. And I bet those scallop fishermen, along with the um, clam diggers and whatever else there would be there, could get together. And if they were responsible for something, they would damn well take care of it. Mm. But we have to change. And here's what I found when I went around and did readings. I couldn't believe that more than two people showed up for a reading. (laughs) And sometimes all those chairs were filled. That shows that people really care about the Gulf of Maine. They love it. They want to find out more about it. They want to protect it. And the thing is, we can do it, but we have to do it and behave differently than we are behaving now. And that seems to be the hardest thing, is to change our rules. Here's another example. Mm. The town of Lubeck, uh, several years ago, simply wanted to have a municipal law or regulation that they as a town chose not to have commercial rockweed harvesting, that it was too important to the rest of their fishermen um, in the community, and they wanted to protect it as a town, and they were simply told there was no mechanism for doing that, that they simply couldn't do it. I think the problem there is that there's an equal protection of the laws clause in the U.S. Constitution and probably most state constitutions. The fact that you live in a certain area doesn't mean that you can only take resources that belong to the state from that area because you're there and that other people can't come in. Uh, You have to have give permission to all of the citizens of the state. And of course it's just to be managed uh, so that it doesn't deplete it and so on. But Susan has a good point. Mm. We need to change how we're thinking about this. We need to have the get the system changed because if we don't, uh, we're just it's just going to continue to. Well, we need to change. We needed to change it yesterday. And <laughs> and here's good time. May I bring up my Aldo Leopold quote? Yes. <laughs> He's one of my heroes. <laughs> Our tools are better than we are and grow better faster than we do. They suffice to crack the atom, to command the tides, but they do not suffice for the oldest task in human history, to live on a piece of land without spoiling it. So you can change land to water. Mm. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah, that is that was really stopped me in my tracks when I read that. He's so he's so brilliant. 
Ken, did you have something? Well, I think that uh, we agree on the goal, and we agree that we're not meeting that goal. Uh, the dominant uh, way of thinking about natural resources is how do we how do we chop them up and grab them and sell them and make money off them and without much thought of why they're there, what are they doing for us even as tourists or as residents and what about uh, how do they fit into the ecosystem which keeps us all alive. We don't think about that. We think how, how fast and how much can we get money out of it by exploiting it right now. I mean... When I say we, that seems to be the dominant way that the culture looks at such resources. Mm -hmm. And that, that certainly has to be changed. We may be forced to change by the fact that we've depleted them until they're not even there anymore. And that makes us pay a little more attention. And we're going through that now in a very big way with the global warming problem, which is changing all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I want to bring up that is good, <laughs> sort of good, almost perfect, is that there is a place called Cassius Ledge. It's off mm -hmm. Gloucester. It's 550 square miles of partially saved seabed. And it's not completely saved, but it's somewhat protected by the federal government. I wish it were totally complete. But if you Google it and then you look at the images, what you'll see is something very beautiful. And it was like, it is like the Gulf of Maine was in the past. And there are cod there. There are kelps, there are all kinds of seaweeds, beautiful colors. There are all kinds of corals there. Uh, sharks come, whales come, everybody comes. And it's like a cradle. And the thing about it that's so exciting is because it's a somewhat safe place, the fish, everything... Um, can reproduce there and live the way it used to live. And then the excess kind of goes out beyond the boundaries and the fishermen can catch it. I mean, it's not rocket science. <laughs> if you want plenty, you have to protect. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful description uh, of that place and I will look it up now <laughs> on Google. <laughs> um, listeners, if you're just joining us, this is Bookworm on WERU. My name is Brooke Minner. I am the librarian at the Brooksville Free Public Library and this month I'm talking with Susan Shutterly about her new book, newish book, The Seaweed Chronicles, A World at the Water's Edge. Uh, we have two special guests with us in the studio. Uh, Ken Ross and uh, Dr. Robin hadlock Seely, who both came down from Washington County and are engaged in this work. So, um, oh, and if you have questions, we would be happy to take your question on the air. You can call locally at 469-0500 or 1-866-625-9378. We have uh, just shy of 15 minutes left of the show. So if you do have a question or a comment, now would be a good time to call in. Um, so picking up on that thread, let's talk a little bit about what is happening in Maine to address these issues, because it's clear that we know we cannot just take and take and take. Um, so w what's happening in Augusta or locally um, 
to try to address this around seaweed or other marine ecology issues. I'd like to talk um, just for a minute about a special law that we have um, in the state of Maine protecting rockweed, but in Cobscook Bay only. So it's called the Cobscook Bay Rockweed Management Law, and it came into effect in 2009 because of the efforts of fishermen and landowners, citizens, towns, um, uh, the tri- uh, Passamaquoddy tribe, all supporting the protection of rockweed in Cobscook Bay because it's so important as a place where people make their living um, fishing for the species that rockweed supports. That law, to me, um, which is not a state regulation, it's actually a state law, is a model for what we could use for the mm-hmm. whole state. Um, it has, here are the features, it has um, a limit on total take, but What's most important to me is that the conservation areas in Cobscook Bay, and there are plenty of them, are automatically no-cut areas. So those conservation areas, um, according to the law, you cannot harvest in Mm. those areas. So there's automatic protection of conservation areas, and that, to me, is one of the most important features of the Cobscook Law and ones that many of us would like to see extended um, for the whole coastline so that there would be these protected areas like Cash's Ledge for rockweed, places where it simply couldn't be harvested. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just going to jump in because we have a caller on oh. the lines, and we will get back to that, and I'm glad to know that there is a good model. We're going to end this on a positive note. If it <laughs> uh, Ned is calling in from Belfast. Go ahead, Ned. Yes, um, I am one of those uh, gardeners that loves to gather rockweed and use it as mulch in my garden. And I always go down to the beach and get the seaweed. You know, I'm not a, it's not a huge garden, but, you know, it's a, it's a, I, I still gather some. And I gather the stuff that's already kind of washed up on the shore um, in the summertime. And I figure that's, well, that's a pretty good way to do it. But I noticed that when I gather them up in the summer, there's a lot of little critters like sand fleas that make their homes there. Again, I don't gather a huge amount of seaweed, but I was wondering if you do use seaweed in the gar- in your garden, is there a time of year when it's better to gather it where you're having a less of an impact on you know, the, the bottom of the food chain and stuff? Um, great question, Ned. Um, one of my favorite books is E.O. Wilson's book called Half Earth. And he believes in sharing half and half. So you can go down and take ascophil- uh, take rockweed, the rack in the summer, uh, or perhaps in the spring, but leave some for the migrating birds because they come down and they will use that and they will eat all those little critters that you see and that'll keep them alive. They have to during migration, if it's the shorebirds coming down, they need to get nice and plump in order to make their journey. And also in the spring, some of that rack that you use, um, uh, robins and flycatchers go to and other species of birds when they come back a little bit too early and they hit a cold snap. So they'll go down there and they'll use that resource. That doesn't mean you can't use it. You see, what we have to do as people is learn how to share. So that's, I mean, you have a very sensitive question. You can go take it. 
just share, and I'm sure you'll do a very good job and your garden will thrive. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Yes, I don't really take that much. So, there's, <laughs> you know, <laughs> acres and acres of it on the beach. I just take that for my, my small garden. But That's thank great. You for yeah, your thanks, answer. Ned. Great. Did you have something you want to add, Robin? Yeah, so um, we have a list of species in Maine called the Species of Greatest Conservation Need, and those are the species all kinds of different species, um, land species, marine species, vertebrates, invertebrates, that the state is most concerned um, about either because they're uh, small populations or they've had a historical decline. And many of our shorebirds are on that list. And those are exactly the shorebirds that Susan's talking about that depend on this beached uh, rockweed that's up on the shore that's full of all these small organisms that our last caller described. So... It may look like waste if it's piled up on the beach, but it's actually not because some of the species that are these species of greatest conservation need are really depending on those. So, you know, as Susan said, it's a question of scale. You know, if you're taking all the rockweed off the beach or you and your neighbors are completely denuding a beach of that rack that those shorebirds are going to come and look for, then, of course, you wouldn't want to do that. But if you're taking a small amount, of course, it's it's all a scale. Mm-hmm. Right. And and I mean, on that note, part of the issue around rockweed, but other seaweeds, too, is is the commercialization. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's one thing if you and I walk down to the beach, it's another thing when you have some sort of corporation. That's Fortunately, the companies, the big companies are not interested in rack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd like to uh, go back to uh, Susan's comment about Cash's Ledge. A uh, very wonderful place and, and a good lesson in what she, the broader point that she made about you have to have a healthy, productive ecosystem in order to provide fisheries at all. And, and then that uh, is a key point for this dispute over rockweed. We who uh, went to court about it uh, so that uh, we wanted the the overall take, well, the excessive take, we thought, uh, reduced, uh, say that uh, we were accused, of course, of taking jobs away from the rockweed harvesters. And uh, and uh, jobs are very crucial for the whole Maine coast and for Maine as a state. But we say that by taking away the rockweed forest that is the basis of the food chain for all the other creatures, including the cod and the pollock and the lobsters and the and the uh, mussels and so on. Um, by taking away that, they're taking jobs away from the fisher people. The, the the rockweed cutters, the mass rockweed cutters, the bulk rockweed cutters are taking jobs away from the other fisheries. Right. And, and so it is they who is reducing yeah. the jobs, not us. We need to keep the rockweed there as a key part of the production system for the fisheries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is so complicated, and and part of what's fascinating about the book is that there are elements of uh, economic development, mm-hmm. you know, which you've alluded to, and and cultural um, t- 
tensions be around you know the, the changing ecosystem and the way that Maine itself uh, is changing over time, yes. you know, in traditional ways that are no longer um, possible and then new things that are coming up. And it, it really is kind of this moment in time um, in a book about seaweed, <laughs> which is really, really great. Um, you see the whole world through seaweed. <laughs> absolutely yeah. do. And there's so much that we didn't get to. We just have about five minutes left in the show. And I thought perhaps we could just go around if you have um, last thoughts that you wanted to share or uh, resource information. Um, I know you're all really engaged in this work. And so I'd like to just leave a little bit of time um, at the end for that. Well, shall I start? Sure. Um, one thing I haven't talked about is one of my favorite chapters. Well, I mean, it's my book. I, <laughs> you know, and I love the people who are in it. But uh, Brad Allen took me out to uh, an eider nesting island, and Brad Allen is in charge of the uh, birds for inland fisheries and wildlife, and uh, it was just a wonderful day. And the thing is that I believe that all these islands really do nurture a number of bird species. And if we could protect islands, that would be a great start. And I think that any place that has, for instance, a lot of nesting birds or birds that come down and use certain places in the winter, um, that those should be... that that the public can help the policy writers by saying, we want those birds saved. Mm -hmm. And um, we can speak up. We don't have to know everything. We just have to know something. Mm. Thank you. So I just wanted to mention if people are interested in getting more information, um, Ken and I are both uh, part of the Rockweed Coalition, and the easiest way to reach us is through an email address, which is simply saveourseaweed, all one word, at gmail.com. Great. Yeah, thank you for that. Ken, how about you? Last last thoughts? Well, I would just say that uh, uh, one of the key problems here is a sort of a cultural difference in the debate between the, the people who look at it uh, pretty much solely in economic terms. Can we make money or not? How fast and so how much? And uh, the ones not are often landowners and environmentalists and scientists and others who look at the nature of the system and how it works and then go from there. And uh, I think we really have to address that instead of just saying someone's taking away jobs from me, the rich people are doing it and so on. Uh, and we need to look at whether anybody should be cutting a huge amount or in, in depleting and changing the shape and the nature of this ecosystem by cutting too much rockweed. Mm. And uh, whether we're rich or poor, it's not going to help the poor people any if we, if we deplete the base of the ecosystem. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's a really good point. And there there was so much more that I was hoping we would cover. There's a lot to talk about here. I really want to thank um, all of you, Susan, Robin, and Ken, for joining me this morning here at WERU. I'd like to encourage our listeners to uh, find a copy of the book. It's called Seaweed Chronicles by Susan Shetterly. Visit your local library or your local bookstore. And uh, join me next month, the second Thursday in December. I will have a... Uh, whole bunch of children's book authors and we will be talking about writing for children and perhaps making some holiday recommendations. Thank you so much Great. for supporting Thank WERU you. and thanks to Thank John you. Greenman for engineering the show. Well, we got about a minute to give you the weather. Why don't we do that right now? Today is going to continue to be cloudy, mostly. Uh, snow showers predicted a 20% chance this afternoon. Tonight, low of 31. More than likely snow at 70%. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Highs at 45 and a low of 15. Tomorrow night, mostly clear. Saturday, sunny with a uh, low of uh, 13. But it's going to be 29, so it's seasonal. We're going to be okay. Sunday is going to be sunny and 34 degrees and uh, with a low of 24 on Sunday night with the possibility of snow later on in the evening. So it looks like we're in for the uh, the fall weather season and this is the way it's going to be from now on and uh, take it or leave it. I'd just as soon take it. And if you could too also take WERU with you wherever you are and don't forget to support us because we are listener supported. We're volunteer powered and we are a voice of many, many voices. Support for WERU comes from our listeners, volunteers, business supporters, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To find out what you can do to support community radio, go to WERU.org. Thank you. The brand new WERU 